the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it, now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. Yes, indeed. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate you being with us at eight minutes after the hour of nine o'clock as we get started. Hopefully you started your day with Hugh Hewitt and had that start. And hopefully you've got a lot of great plans later today, like, you know, Dennis Prager and Charlie Kirk and Sebastian Gorka. Thank you for including us as part of that daily rotation. We're very, very glad to be here. It is a, t- uh, excuse me, it's a Wednesday. It feels like a Tuesday because of what I'm about to say. It is a Wednesday. It's the 20th morning of the seventh month of the year of our Lord, 2022. I was about to tell you who our guests are going to be today, which made me think Tuesday. So the good news for you for, I think, the third straight week? Uh, that Pete has been traveling in the early part of the week and had to bump his regular Tuesday appearance to Wednesday. I think this is the third straight Wednesday that we have had Peter Kersenow. So coming up in an hour, Peter Kersenow will be with us. He has got a lot of thoughts. Uh, he has got a lot of uh, uh, important opinions that he wants to share uh, about a number of issues. Uh, and I don't want to steal too much of his thunder, but, yeah, he will have some thoughts on what is going on on Capitol Hill right now. He will have some thoughts on the uh, Biden declaration of a climate emergency. If that is to come, whatever that is, he's going to talk a little bit about why the Dems are preparing a rope for Joe Manchin and why it is that Merriam-Webster uh, 
has agreed essentially to surrender science. Science no longer exists. Science has given up. Science has surrendered. They have changed or at least amended the definition of the word female in, uh, in deference to the trans movement. That's right. The trans warriors are winning the war. They are killing science in favor of feelings. You know, Ben Shapiro once famously said that facts don't care about your feelings. Ben Shapiro was right. But Ben Shapiro is being driven out of the uh, out of the equation now. Feelings matter more than facts in woke America. It's a dangerous place to be. And Pete and I will talk about that coming up at ten ten this morning at eleven ten. We're going to talk about the Ohio uh, um, Senate race between J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan with Neil McCabe. Neil McCabe, of course, is our good friend and Wednesday commentator on matters of Ohio politics uh, from the Ohio Star. And J.D. Vance is angering a lot of Ohio conservatives and Ohio Republicans for essentially pulling a Biden when it comes to his campaign strategy. He's in the basement. He's pretty much just sitting by and believing that he's going to win because he's a Republican and Ohio is a red state. And Trump carried Ohio to straight elections by large numbers, over 8%, and that he doesn't have to worry. That's the belief, anyway, of a lot of the critics who are coming down in here in Ohio on J.D. Vance for not uh, showing a little more effort, a little bit more moxie, a little bit more of a concern for the people of Ohio and uh, and winning this seat rather than just having this seat awarded to him because he ran as a Republican and Tim Ryan is not. So it's uh, kind of an, I read a great piece in the Washington Examiner about this. We're going to talk about that with Neil McCabe as well. Neil McCabe from the Ohio Star will be with me at 1110. So two guests, Kirsten out at 1010, McCabe at 1110, and you are the third guest everywhere and anywhere else other than those times. 216-901-0945 is the number, 888-281-1110. That's another number. Either one of those works. You may also leave a message for me if you don't want to wait on hold and you just want to get some things off your chest, a question, a comment, go to alwayswrite.us, alwayswrite.us. Click the sound off button in the upper right-hand corner, and then leave a message for me. It'll come right to my screen, and I'll push play, and we'll listen to you all over radio land. And then we'll respond and react to whatever it is that you have to say. So it's just that simple. All right, now we're going to start our day with the news of the day. After we stand. Patriots, please go ahead and rise, wherever you may be. If you're new to the program, don't think that we're all nuts. If you're new to the program, don't think that people are laughing about this and nobody is doing it. You have no idea about the patriotism of this audience. You really don't. Uh, I know them because I speak to them and I see them and I talk to them at public events and speaking engagements and they come up to me and they say, Bob, I stand for that pledge every single day. And they don't do it in other people, in front of other people, rather, or because there are other people around, we should put it that way. It's not performance art like AOC pretending to be handcuffed as she gets led away from her blocking an intersection uh, over protesting the, uh, the law that says you can't kill babies quite as easily as you used to be able to. It's not performance art. People do it. It means a lot to them. Uh, so many of us have flags where we are at this time of the morning. And I have mine. It's just wonderful. I mean, I had a flag that I already faced whenever we did our pledge in the mornings. It was a, in fact, I'm looking at it right now. It's a folded flag. Um, and it was a flag that flew over the capitals of Iraq and Afghanistan at the ver- on the very same day. 
It flew in uh, Kabul, or I'm sorry, it flew in Baghdad first, then it was flown or taken to Afghanistan, and it flew over Afghanistan. And uh, it was presented to me to me by some U.S. Marines who just wanted to express their appreciation for uh, for my support of their military efforts and our military as a whole. Uh, it's one of my most treasured possessions. But it's folded and displayed here in my uh, studio. Anyway, a listener uh, a few months ago sent me this beautiful, wonderful um, metal uh, flag, you know, a, p- a punch-out flag that has the Pledge of Allegiance actually on the stripes uh, of the flag. And uh, it is also on my wall, so that's the one I face now. But for those who are new to the program, no, people take it seriously. They do put flags where they can see them. They do face them. They do stand. They do put their hand on their heart, and they say the Pledge of Allegiance with me. And I'm going to ask you to do that right now. If you are a believer in Joe Biden declaring a climate emergency in order to strip more of your rights away from you and waste trillions of American tax dollars then you don't believe in the liberty that that flag represents anyway. You are exempted from the request to stand and and uh, recite this pledge. Go ahead and take a knee instead over, uh, over there next to your favorite ex-quarterback. For the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty, and justice for all. I should uh, apologize, too, by the way, because I have been absolutely derelict in my duty in getting your flags posted. I, I spend so much time on the webpage, alwayswrite.us, getting the content up there. Because that's, you know, first and foremost, the reason why people would visit the webpage. And I want it to be a companion uh, to this radio program. And... Um, but I have been promising for, for a very long time to take the flag pictures that you have sent to me that you face every day when you say your pledge um, and put them on a, in a gallery, and I just haven't done it. And that's that's I have a whole bunch of them, and now i got to find them again, and emails and direct messages on my Facebook page and all kinds of things like that. But, uh, but I will get them up. I, I really will. Uh, what you can see now on the uh, top of the page, the uh, uh, alwaysrate.us page right now, are the top stories, including the one that we are going to start with. Joe Biden is promising that he is going to declare a climate emergency. Now, what is a climate emergency? Well, that's the question. And, and, and bigger picture, there are a lot of answers to it. Um, you can probably guess what most of them are. It is extremism. It is a waste of tax dollars. It is Joe Biden moving to declare more power or to create or to create more power for the federal government and less for businesses and for, for consumers, all in order to placate his gangrene movement, which essentially is running his presidency, the environmental nut jobs. But smaller picture, here's one answer. Politics. The New York Post wrote a great piece about this, and it is on the uh, webpage right now. It's under one of the top stories, or it is under it is a top story. Um, but the New York Post wrote a great piece about it. The declaration, or the soon-to-be declaration of a climate emergency, is nothing more than pure politics. I want to read a portion of this to you. If Biden goes ahead and declares this climate emergency... It'll be one more sign he's putting the extremist demands of his party's base ahead of democracy, science, and common sense. 
The move would be pure politics. The only thing that's changed on the environmental front over the last week is the death of the Democrats' hopes to devote $300 billion of your tax dollars to green industries. Oh, and earlier the Supreme Court finally told the EPA it couldn't misread the clear letter of the law to impose costly anti-carbon emission mandates on the nation. Neither the tax credits nor the EPA's rules would have had much immediate impact on climate change anyway, especially since China, India, and the developing world continue to vastly increase their emissions. I'll pause there just to kind of make sure you hear that. All of these nut jobs who want to say that we, 330 million people in this country, can change the climate if we just agree to a carbon tax, if we agree to get rid of our uh, um, uh, uh, combusti- uh, combustion engines, internal combustion, gasoline-powered engines, if we just agree to uh, give up our uh, air conditioning, give up our, our SUVs, if we just give up our barbecue grills, if we stop emitting so much carbon, 330 million people in the United States, the planet will be saved. Never mind the fact that there's 7.5 billion people on this planet, and the overwhelming majority of them live in two countries, China and India, the two most heavily, densely populated countries on Earth. And they don't stop anything. They haven't made a single effort, other than lip service, to try to decrease their carbon emissions. So there's nothing about this that we could do that would impact anything except our own wallets, our own tax bills, our own ability to buy what we want to live our way of life. That's the only thing that would be affected by this is us. It would not affect the planet one iota. As a matter of fact, there are some statistics, and perhaps you've seen these. I don't think this is new. But the reality is that about... 0.04% of the atmosphere is made up of carbon, carbon dioxide. Human beings impact 3% of that 0.04%. In other words, over 99.5% of the atmosphere is, is literally out of our control. All of it, it's out of our control. The dent that human beings can make, Uh, on this issue, particularly if it's just one nation or a couple of nations out of the world's 195 nations and the massive overpopulated countries not doing anything about it, the impact that we can make is not just negligible, it's, it's, it's invisible. It's so minuscule, it is invisible. You would need, you know, the world's most powerful microscope to see the impact we can make. But this is not about saving the climate or the planet. It's not about altering the climate. They can't even agree as, as to whether or not the climate is, is going to lead to the country melting or freezing to death. They've changed their mind three times over the last 50 years alone. It's going to freeze. It's going to burn. It's going to freeze. We're going to burn. The planet has a fever. The planet's got a cold. Over and over. They can't make up their minds because it's constantly changing. Just like it did all of the times in the eons that this planet has existed, in which ice ages, global ice ages, have formed and then evaporated. Suddenly, somehow, a planet that is essentially a frozen ball of ice somehow melted. 
The climate changed through the millions and millions and millions of years. And they didn't, the planet didn't warm to melt those ice ages because there were um, organisms that were driving SUVs. And then, oh, by the way, whatever caused it to warm, you know, the sun, somehow stopped affecting the planet in such a way, and it would freeze again. We have had multiple ice ages, multiple thaws and warmings, because that's what this planet does. And it is not controlled by the little specks of insignificance called human beings. Sorry to get off on that rant, but I just get very, very tired of the... Uh, people who try to overcomplicate something that is, quite frankly, very, very easy to see and very, very simple. But at any rate, back to the New York Post. The new emergency is Democrats' inability to get their way through normal Democratic procedures. That is, winning the majorities in Congress needed to change U.S. laws by convincing a majority of Americans that drastic action is called for. To be clear, the New York Post says... Um, most of the media and school curricula push cataclysmic claims about climate change so the public, especially younger people, who've been propagandized for their entire lives, routinely tell pollsters it would like the government to act. And then the government, people like Joe Biden, they go to the people and say, look, the majority of Americans want us to take action on climate change, so we're going to do it. We're going to declare we're going to declare a climate emergency, and that's going to allow us to do all of these things that we can't get done through the legislative actions. We can't get done because we don't have a majority, and a big enough majority, in the House or any majority in a 50-50 Senate. So guess what? Now we're going to do what the people want anyway, and we're going to de- declare a climate emergency. It is complete propaganda, and it is complete indoctrination with facts that change literally by the decade. They just change them around. Nope, we're going to freeze. Nope, we're going to we're going to we're going to melt. The New York Post writes that support, even from young people, turns to dust when it comes to the most specific steps, which involve huge expenses for very small gains. Witness the fury at four dollar a gallon gas, a direct result of Biden's war on carbon fuels, declaring a carbon emergency or excuse me a climate emergency might let Biden impose a few more anti-carbon mandates and so show the Democrat base that he's doing something. Just something. It's kind of like whenever there's a mass shooting. We have to do something. Let's ban guns from being in the hands of law-abiding people who are not a threat to anyone. Because we have to do something. What can we do? Little kids got shot. We have to do something. Sometimes the best thing to do is nothing and acknowledge that evil exists in this world and it has to be combated, but you don't combat it by punishing the the good. And that is exactly the case here as well. Yes, the climate, it may change. Over the course of millions of years, it has changed so dramatically. And will it continue to do so? I cannot imagine that it will not. Is it something we should be sacrificing our liberties for? And our and our and our, our our budgets for and our families' well-being for, when we can't change it, absolutely not. And if they put it to a poll, America would reject this resoundingly. And that's why Biden is going to use executive order and declare a climate emergency. Got so much to get into here. I want you to be a part. 216-901-0945-888-281-1110. It's always right radio. On AM 1420, The Answer.
Okay, it's 928. Thanks for being with us on Always Right Radio. Still have a lot to do here in this hour, but uh, let me go ahead and squeeze in a phone call here as uh, BJ wants to get in in this first half hour. Let's do it. Hey, BJ, you're on the air. Go ahead, sir. Thank you, Bob. I'd like to bring some, draw something to your attention. Mm-hmm. And that's the group from the 1960s and early 70s who are now in their 70s and 80s. And I go to the North Olmsted Senior Center and I participate in programs there. These people are very much aware of what's going on, and for the most part, they're rather ignored by the political system. There are more seniors living today than there ever have been, and they're act- they want to be active. And when you speak to them, they're very much aware of the period that they were young teenagers. Back in 1968, a lot of these 75- and 80-year-olds were all teenagers in early 20s. They're fed up with what's going on with government. And I'd like to see a coalition of seniors really growing together at these senior centers and mobilizing. It affects their lives. The number of people that are living, that are in, like O'Neill's, these places lying in beds or, or, or being in assisted living is a damn shame because they're being ignored and they have to be activated. More and more of these senior centers are waking up to the fact that they're out there. And they are coming in. And if you really talk to a group of seniors, you'll find out they're pretty hip. They may look old like your grandparents did 50 years ago, but they're not the same kind of senior 60, 70 years ago. These are hip 80 and 70 and 80-year-olds that want to be more active, and they don't have a place to go to be active. And I think if there was a major senior coalition formed, where they could, whether they're Democrat or Republican, conservative or liberal, whatever it may be, it's a, it's a large, large number, and too many of them are taking rooms in these senior centers because they're either lonely or, or they don't have coalitions uh, to, to, to participate in more ways. Years ago, I had written a little uh, story about a group of men that, de- that were living independently and decided to get together and share a place. And I think this would be an idea where seniors who are living in their little apartments maybe got together with four or five, and rented a home. I mean, it sounds absurd, but we have to become aware that we have a huge number of viable seniors. And while we're giving money away to these other countries, there's been no effort to raise the Social Security benefits. So I, I'd like to make that point on their behalf. Well, you know what, BJ, and thank you, my friend, for the phone call. I appreciate it. And that is a very good point. Nobody is, is, is addressing with respect to Social Security. Uh, but I'll say this. It is, a, it is a crying shame what the media has done to advance the OK Boomer um, attitude. Uh, people dismiss boomers. People dismiss today's seniors. You are part of the past. You are not part of our woke future. We don't want to hear about your World War II stories. We don't want to hear about your experience in life. You are part of the past. You're a relic. You don't count toward today's woke America. That's the attitude that has been fostered, I think, sadly, by culture and by the modern mainstream and social media. It's a shame to say. And you're right to complain because these seniors, today's seniors, have so much more to offer uh, than anybody wants to listen to. God bless you, my friend. Thank you. Right back after the news. Delivering you from the depravity of the radical left. 
Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Okay, 939, we continue. Don't forget, Kersenow is coming up at 1010 this morning. And then uh, at 11.10, we're going to talk to Neil McCabe of the Ohio Star. I want to get into uh, the latest um, insanity um, from uh, from the Brandon administration as it pertains to inflation. Uh, first of all, I want to just say this about Joe Manchin. Thank God um, we had somebody who is a Democrat, um, who's a man of integrity and character, and that we could count on, as I told you two years ago, we would have to do, to stop the worst legislation that was part of the platform, part of the policy prescription by the Democrats when Biden was uh, installed as president, and he had all all of the all, full control, including both branches of the Congress. I told you, don't fret. We just have to tread water and hope that the worst legislation—you know—a lot of a lot of the legislation the Democrats want to do, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, and others are going to vote for. But the worst of the worst, we have to put our trust that they, and we will have to ask our um, own representation to talk to them and try to encourage them to stand firm and to stand fast and to not go along with their party if it's not good for America or good for their particular constituents. I said Joe Manchin is easily the number one target for that. Uh, And for two years, we just have to hope he doesn't cast a vote to uh, abolish the filibuster, cast a vote to pack the court, cast a vote to declare D.C. and to declare Puerto Rico states to give them four more left-wing Senate seats. You know, just the worst of the worst. Tread water for two years, and in 2022, we'll turn it around. Well, here we are. We're just a few months away from the election in November that is expected to be a massive Republican victory, and we have, indeed, Joe Manchin to thank. And that's exactly why the left is fashioning a noose for Joe Manchin. They are going ballistic at his further declaration that he will not agree to sign on to Green New Deal legislation that would spend $300 billion of your tax dollars, uh, essentially trying to put fossil fuels out of business and uh, spending them with connected, Democrat-connected, new green energy companies. It's terrible for the uh, for the economy. It's terrible for the average American middle class taxpayer. And he said, "I'm not going to do it because what matters more to me is inflation. That's what's hurting the people that voted for me, the people that uh, I represent." The criticism I'm getting uh, from the people who are saying what Joe Manchin strings. I'm not stringing you along. Don't you believe inflation is the number one thing in America right now that's hurting every human being? Don't you believe that inflation is the number one thing in America that's hurting every human being? Answer is absolutely yes. Would his support for that bill make inflation worse? Absolutely it would. He is the one Democrat that has the guts, that has, or one of two, cinema sometimes alongside, but has the guts to do what is right for the people and not what is being ordered by his party, even though now they want to drum him out of the party, FYI. They want to literally drum him out of the party. That's one of their new trending things is fire Manchin, uh, expel Manchin from the party, let him be an independent, let him be a Democrat. And you know what, the way I feel about it? Go ahead. I would welcome him into the Republican Party. He's already more conservative than a lot of the Republican senators that are in the uh, body right now. I'd welcome him on our side. He isn't always going to vote the right way, just like Rob Portman doesn't. But why not bring him aboard? You can expel him from the party, but you know what you can't do, you left-wing lunatics? You can't expel him from the Senate unless you vote him out. And the people of West Virginia, I don't believe, will do that. I think the people of West Virginia like the fact that he's looking out for them 
and not for Joe Biden and not for the globalist movement. Now, having said that, I wanted to lead that into what Biden and Brandon are, are doing and what they are trying to tell you they're doing. It's two different things. They're, of course, trying to end fossil fuels in the United States of America. That is very plain. They've been very ob- uh, honest about that. They have said it. We will kill fossil fuels. Mark my words. I guarantee you we will, uh, we will end fossil fuels. You don't have to agree, but I want you to look in my eyes. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. We're going to end fossil fuel, and I am not going to cooperate with you, okay? And, of course, he started doing that on day one, as we know about the pipeline, about the leases, and so forth. Well, over the course of the year and a half of the Biden presidency, as gas went from around 2 bucks a gallon to 5 bucks a gallon, you know the story by now. It has been Putin's fault, Putin's fault, Putin's fault. We can't control the gas prices. It's Putin's fault. He went into Ukraine. It completely destabilized the world oil market. Right? You've heard that for, I don't know, the last uh, three months? Well, two days ago, Monday, the 18th, this is an actual tweet from the White House Twitter account. The White House. At POTUS is taking historic action to lower gas prices for families. And gas prices have declined by an average of 50 cents per gallon over the last 34 days. According to industry analysts, around 20,000 gas stations across over 30 states now offer gas at 3.99 per gallon or less. <clears throat> They're flexing that. They're flexing the fact that gas has fallen 50 cents a gallon and that it's now in over 30 states, some gas stations, over 30 states, offer gas at 3.99 a gallon. Literally for three months, they have been saying, don't blame us for the gas prices. We can't control them. Now that they are starting to slide a little bit from the historic highs, they're saying, we control them. Look what we did. POTUS is taking historic action to lower gas prices for family. Well, if POTUS has the ability to take historic action to lower gas prices, why did he wait until they got over $5 a gallon to start? Why did he not do something when it went from $2 a gallon to two fifty? If you have the power to take historic action to lower gas prices, why didn't you start taking action when it was $3 and knock it back down to two fifty? If he has this historic action plan, and he can do now, which you said, by the way, during the run-up in the rise of gas to over $5 a gallon national average, if he has the power to control it now, why didn't he have the power to control it then? These people are just, what, what's the most frustrating isn't what they're doing, it's that they think you're too stupid to know they're doing it. Right? That, that's, the, that's the thing that just kind of sticks in my craw. They think that we are a bunch of babbling buffoons with our fingers stuck in little Chinese finger traps and we're trying to figure out how to get it out. Wait, are you kidding me? And by the way, that little metric of theirs, over 20,000 gas stations across over 30 states now offer gas at three ninety nine a gallon or less. What an interesting metric. What an interesting way to phrase it. 20,000 gas stations. Okay. How about we don't just single out individual gas stations and we do what everybody does, and let's talk about the average. The average number or the average price of gas in every state. How, how about we do that? Because when you look at that map, there are two states Two states in which gas prices actually are at three ninety nine or lower, under $4 a gallon. Two states, not 30 states, two states, Texas and South Carolina, and that's it. That's it. 
but they want to take this victory lap because gas prices have gone down 50 cents in the last 34 days. Well, if you're going to take credit for the 34 uh, for the 50 cent reduction, then you damn well better say, yeah, we own the $3 increase. Now, having said that, we come to this. Pete Booty Judge, the uh, the uh, transportation secretary, was testifying before a Senate committee about the cost of gas and about the cost of energy. The man who is in charge of America's transportation said this. Of course, the more pain we are all experiencing from the high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access electric vehicles. Wait, what? Could, could you? Wait, wait, what? Did you really just say the more pain that we experience at the pump, the better things are for people who can buy electric vehicles? He didn't really say that, did he? Of course, the more pain we are all experiencing from the high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access electric vehicles. <laughs> I don't know if it's possible to be more tone deaf. Because over 95% of the American public uses gas-powered cars. That means you just said the more pain that 95% of the American people feel the more benefit there is for the 5% that it can afford an electric car with an average cost of $57,000. Kelly Blue Book says the average cost of an EV is $57,000. How many people in America can afford that? Well, I just told you, about 5%, maybe less. But he says, hey, suck it up, experience the pain, Accept the pain, embrace the pain of the gas prices we are inflicting upon you because the more you suffer, the more the 5% who have EVs can benefit from it. Of course, the more pain we are all experiencing from the high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access electric vehicles. I, I, it, there's some, sometimes, sometimes you just can't write it. Um, you just have to sit here and just let your jaw drop and... Uh, and listen to it. Representative Thomas Massey was part of that uh, House committee that was talking to Pete Buttigieg. And uh, Thomas Massey uh, wanted to point out that Buttigieg's prescription to solve this little dilemma, to put an electric vehicle in every garage or in every parking lot next to every apartment building or on every street outside of every home, might not necessarily be the most practical thing for them. The average uh, household uses 17% of their electricity for air conditioning. And um, that would mean the average household uses 1,870 kilowatt hours per year for air conditioning. If that average household plugged in electric cars, do you know how much more electricity they would use in comparison to the air conditioning that air conditions their whole house? No, but again, I would emphasize it. Will well, let, be me help less you. let me help you overall. with that first before we go on because the numbers are important. It would take four times as much electricity to charge the average household's cars as the average household uses on air conditioning. Do you think that could be so if we reach the goal by 2030 that Biden has of a 50 percent adoption instead of 100 percent adoption, that means the average household would use twice as much electricity charging one of their cars as they would use for all of the air conditioning that they use for the entire year. So 
what Thomas Massey there just pointed out is twofold, and it needs to be understood by everybody. Number one, the cost for the average homeowner, if you think that I don't have to buy gas if I get an electric vehicle, therefore it's a huge savings for me, your electric bill is going to be four times higher than it is when you, you uh, let me rephrase, that's not correct. It's going to be four, it costs four times as much electricity that you are going to have to buy than you buy to air condition your entire home. That's number one. The cost is going to be exorbitant in a different way. And number two, already the use of air conditioning has many southern and western states resorting to rolling blackouts during the summertime. uh, we We heard you, Representative Massey. We don't need to hear you again. Southern and western states have rolling blackouts, or brownouts, if you will, in which they are ordered to shut off their power, shut off their electricity, or the cities do it for them because there is too much of a strain on the electrical grid. They can't handle it. All of these houses in these warm climates using their air conditioning at the same time. And yet they want you to think that it's possible for all of those vehicles to come home these gas-powered vehicles replaced by EVs and plug in at 4 and 5 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the afternoon and evening and that the electrical grid is going to be able to withstand it. It can't handle AC use in the summertime, but it's going to handle AC use and charging electric car batteries. These people, their, their ignorance just knows no bounds. That's all I can say. Ignorance and stupidity, and that's bad. But maybe what's even worse, like I said, is that they think we are too stupid to see it. They condescend to us. Uh, they, they do. They talk down to us and think that we're too stupid to know what's going on. Real quick, it's 9.53, but real quick, I want to get you this, too. It's good to know that Joe Biden is working very, very hard on these things, though, right? Uh, twice over the last two days, press secretaries or co-press secretaries like John Kirby and Corrine Jean-Pierre have been asked, where's Biden? What's he doing? And these have been the responses. I noticed on the president's schedule the last two days, uh, there have been no public events. Is he resting after the large international trips? The president's been busy. I'll let Kareem speak to the president's schedule, uh, but the president's been quite busy. Just because you don't see uh, something necessarily on the public schedule doesn't mean that uh, there's not a lot of work going on. Okay. Thank you, John Kirby. Let's let Corrine answer that. Where's the president been? What's he doing? Has he been involved in these meetings today, or what exactly has he been doing yesterday and today? So he's been in meetings. I was uh, I was called. I was scheduled to meet with him today uh, uh, in in the Oval Office. So he's been meeting with his senior staff. He's been meeting with uh, a staff. I think some of you may have seen him when uh, when the the First Lady of Ukraine uh, was visiting visiting with our First Lady. Uh, I believe you saw uh, you saw him very briefly. Uh, so he's just been very busy. Busy uh, dealing with uh, the issues of the American people and meeting with his uh, staff and senior staff. The, the first reporter got it right. Is he resting from his grueling Middle East trip? Remember, he had to make two separate trips from the United States to those other regions of the world, across the Atlantic to Europe and then back home again so he could rest up before he went back across and went to the Middle East. He couldn't do it at the same time. He couldn't do a 10-day trip. His body, his old, ancient, very quickly decaying body and mind could not handle it. They acknowledged as much. 
and he had to come home in between the, 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 the two portions of the trip. Then after the second trip, the one to the Middle East, he's been completely incommunicado. No public events, nothing. Where is he? Where is he? Karine Jean-Pierre says, well, he's, he's, in, he's in meetings. He's working on the, the issues of the American people. Really. Joe Biden's in bed. Joe Biden's in bed, probably with IVs. He's probably being pumped full of different things that try to make him coherent and alert. Uh, he is clearly not in a good enough position, uh, or let me rephrase, in a healthy enough position to lead this country. He cannot stand the rigors of the day-to-day work. That's why he retreats to Delaware, not most, but every single weekend, because he cannot stand the physical demands and mental demands of the job. And now the reporters are starting to notice it. Where is he? What exactly was he doing yesterday? Um, I think you may have saw him briefly when the uh, First Lady had uh, somebody over. And he's uh, meeting with his staff and talking about, you know, um, the needs of the American people. This is a banana republic, and this leadership is a clown show. And there's nothing they can do to hide that anymore. I'll be right back. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. Onward into hour number two, we roll. Thanks for being with us on Always Right Radio. Nine minutes after the hour of 10 o'clock on this Wednesday, the 20th morning of the seventh month of the year of our Lord, 2022. Uh, My goodness, this is the third Wednesday in a row that as a Wednesday audience, you have been treated to something that perhaps you did not expect because of the Tuesday audience is always the audience that gets Peter Kersen out. But for the third straight week, Pete has been traveling and has uh, had to bump his appearance back. So let's welcome our good friend and the longest-serving commissioner in the history of the United States Civil Rights Commission, Peter Kersen. <laughs> back to a Wednesday edition. Pete, good morning, my friend. How are you? Good morning, Bob. I've been better, and I'm, I'm operating on very, very little sleep, so I'm going to sound even less lucid than normal. <laughs> I don't buy that for a second, Pete. I don't know that you have the uh, capability of being tired, and I certainly don't think you have the capability of anything uh, close to lo- uh, less than lucid. Uh, Pete, you uh, you uh, have a lot to answer to here, though. You have a lot of issues that we're going to ask you to kind of opine upon here. Because this country has just fallen straight to hell. Um, uh, Joe Biden is about to declare a, a climate emergency. Pete, a climate emergency. The reason he's going to declare that is so that he then has executive powers opened up to him, at least in his mind, and maybe in the mind of White House attorneys, that he's going to have executive powers opened up to him to take some dramatic actions, all in response to the fact that he can't get enough members of the Congress that he and his party control to come together and pass a Green New Deal $300 billion uh, clean energy boondoggle. He can't get it done legislatively, and so he's going to declare a climate emergency. Do you even know what that means, Peter, and what kind of powers this could grant him and how it will affect the American people? 
he needs to declare a presidential emergency. You know, I mean, we <laughs> we we need to clean up that White House. It's it's really pathetic. And yeah, what's happening here? This is very troubling. You know, we constantly hear from Democrats that uh, democracy is in peril. Um, that you know, we were we're in a state of, especially during the Trump administration, we're a state where democracy is falling apart, and uh, we're at a nascent dictatorship. And what's happened here is very interesting. The Democrats unable through the democratic process to pass any part of their climate agenda simply want to now circumvent the legislative process abdicate their responsibilities under article one of the constitution give it all to the president and say go ahead and do whatever you want to do basically now not whatever he wants to do but they want to you know use the authorities granted under their i think they're doing it under the national emergencies act maybe yeah. Uh, some other types of acts they, they will try to graft onto that. But first of all, it's the wrong procedure. Second of all, we just had a Supreme Court decision, which reigned in this kind of, of course, it was regulatory abuse, but this is what the president, the president is the executive. The president would delegate his authorities or powers to executive branch agencies to implement his climate agenda or the climate emergency. So that Supreme Court decision would constrain the ability to do that. And, and it flies in the face of that decision. You know, we may have to send out some more AOCs and others to protest and pretend they're in, in handcuffs uh, if it doesn't work out well for them. But under the National Emergencies Act, which I suspect he probably would try to tap, and I don't profess to be an expert on this at all. I've, you know, been involved in certain aspects of this in the past, but I, I am not the, the expert on this. And I don't think there are very many experts in the country because it's not regularly or even rarely invoked, but it allows, if invoked, for, for example, the military to be involved in certain things to combat certain climate concerns, ostensibly. Okay, they'd have to find, there have to be certain findings, and then the military would be um, used to, for example, uh, maybe build solar panels or something. Uh, he could meaning Biden, halt offshore oil drilling or maybe stop granting leases, probably use the Defense Production Act again to maybe build um, charging stations. Uh, there's a whole host of things that conceivably he may be able to do, but it's really kind of around the edges. That sounds like several things he could do, and it sounds like it would cost a lot of money. It probably would. But there could be a number of challenges to his authority in doing that, especially when you've got legislative provisions related to these kinds of issues. Congress is supposed to do this stuff. The president's not supposed to do this by legislative fiat. And again, the Supreme Court, having given a clear signal as to separation of powers and the authority of uh, the uh, executive agencies to do things that are otherwise legislative. We don't want to cede any more authority to a you know executive branch. elected body, elected uh, EPA. Exactly right. Right. This is what the Congress is supposed to do. And again, it's very telling that they're very frustrated. Mansion, as you indicated, because they can't get the legislation done. They're supposed to get this done. So I'm saying, okay, why? In other words, why not simply let the president do whatever he wants to do? Then why have a legislature? Right. So That's I think exactly it's going to be, right. there are going to be a number of challenges. I bet you right now, one of the reasons why Biden hasn't said anything, aside from the fact that he can't figure out what the heck is going on, is that they're trying to figure out precisely what they can do that won't meet a robust uh, court challenge immediately. And I would, ex I would expect that a number of trade associations, industry groups, um, even um, 
nonprofits are poised to fight immediate challenges to anything he tries to do oh, that yeah. circumvents the the uh, Congress. The fossil fuel companies that that sued uh, and West Virginia sued the EPA, uh, you know, to you know to stop them from from taking the actions that would essentially have killed them, and that the Supreme Court ruled on. There's no doubt uh, there would be lawsuits here. I want to read this super quick from um, Yahoo News. This is their uh, explanation: a formal declaration of a climate emergency. Uh, which, of course, is only happening because Joe Manchin announced he will not vote for that bill addressing climate change unless it, inflation slows dramatically. He's worried about his uh, uh, the people in in uh, West Virginia, which is exactly, by the way, what his job is. He's one of the few Democrats exactly willing right. to acknowledge the truth here. Here's what you know. And I want to play this for you real quick, if I can, because this is uh, before I actually read you the, uh, the the Yahoo News thing. But here's what Joe Joe Manchin said when asked about his critics and his refusal to play ball with the Democrats. Criticism I'm getting. Uh, from the people who are saying what Joe Manchin strings, I'm not stringing you all. Don't you believe inflation is the number one thing in America right now that's hurting every human being? The answer, of course, is yes. Inflation is hurting everyone in America right now, particularly the middle class that the Democrats claim to have a concern for. So he he announces he's not gonna he's not gonna do this. He's not gonna vote for this. And uh, so the declaration of a climate emergency could open up, according to Yahoo News, uh, possibilities for unilateral action by the executive branch to combat climate change, including halting U.S. exports of crude oil and uh, halting any offshore drilling. Biden could redirect military funding to the construction of renewable energy projects. You talked about that a little bit. Uh, as uh, much as former President Trump diverted more than $18 billion in Pentagon funding to build the wall, which he, he viewed as being national security, and he was right. Uh, also impose trade penalties on countries that permit de- deforestation, such as the destruction of the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. Uh, those are just some of the things that Biden could do if he if he is successful in declaring a climate emergency. But everything that he does impacting American fossil fuel companies and workers is very likely to result in lawsuits from the companies and from Republicans as well. Right, and it's going to harm the economy. As Joe Manchin rightly indicated, inflation is the biggest problem we've got right now. These guys are, by these guys, I mean the White House and their acolytes, are concerned about speculative things. Even if we give them the benefit of the doubt that there is some kind of climate change going on, I think you'd find it hard-pressed to say that this qualifies as an emergency. Let's say, you know, there is an emergency in terms of climate change. Nonetheless, this kind of action is ill-considered. It should be going through the legislative branch. You are going to get a number of challenges, appropriately so. Again, the Supreme Court opined about this kind of universal exercise of executive branch authority and the dangers that that poses. This is the wrong idea at this time. At, at any time, frankly. They say it is an emergency, though. Hey, Pete, they, they, Jeff Merkley from Oregon, Senator Merkley from Oregon, says it literally is an emergency, saying, quote, there is nothing more important for our nation and for our world than for the United States to drive a bold energetic transition in its energy economy from fossil fuels to renewables. My state is in crisis. We have massive droughts that are destroying our farmers. It's affecting our forests. We have the red zone where pine beetles are killing the pine trees. We have the forest fires and a huge impact on our fishing, both in streams and in offshore. He said this is absolutely an emergency. Uh, the Senate, or excuse me, the President made clear that if the Senate doesn't act to tackle the climate crisis, climate crisis excuse me, and strengthen our domestic clean energy, he will. We are considering all options. So they're saying it literally is an emergency. And Pete, this is the thing that, I, that gets me. We are a nation of 330 million people. 
in a planet of about seven and a half billion people. And the two most populated right. countries on that planet, China, China and, India. and India, do nothing to dent or, or impact the carbon emissions. As a matter of fact, while we are busy slashing ours and putting carbon taxes on the American people and shutting down businesses, shutting down industries, putting millions of people out of work, they are increasing their carbon outputs, and somehow we think this is going to balance the planet. Yeah, by far, China is the biggest polluter on the planet, but more importantly, they're the biggest emitter by far, not even close. I don't recall what the percentage is, but I think it's like 40 to 60 percent of all greenhouse, so-called greenhouse gases comes from Chinese industry. Not only that, even the so-called woke European Union, Germany and other European nations are now refiring up their coal plants. Why? Because the emergency is human beings. You know, these people are so, when I say these people, I'm talking about Biden and his crew are so focused on trees and shrubs and frogs, they forgot that they represent human beings who are suffering dramatically, both from the climate change agenda of the liberals and also their ridiculous economic policies. They're, they're almost try, it's almost as if they're trying to turn us into a third world country. You mean, one that have, requires, you mean one that requires pallets of baby formula being shipped to us from other countries? Exactly right. What, what an incredible embarrassment that is. The United States of America having to import baby formula from other countries? This is absurd. Focus on the United States of America, not these fantasy green energy ideas of AOC and others. You, you talk to ordinary Americans, and it doesn't matter if they're on the left or on the right, and the number one issue, of course, is inflation. You know, the subset of that, of the most serious subset of that, obviously, is gas prices. Then we're talking about crime increases. Then we're talking about the, the border. Uh, and they do nothing about it except make those things worse. It's extraordinary to disconnect here. So, yeah, go ahead, President. Focus on something as ridiculous as your climate change agenda at the same time that ordinary Americans are suffering mightily directly as a result. You can draw a direct line from an administrative action to some type of malady being experienced by the American people right now. And climate change is something that is a diversion from the fact that they are screwing up on everything else. Peter Kirsten, now with us on AM 1420, The Answer. That seems like a good time for a break before we come back and talk about the House passing a bill last night or yesterday uh, that is intended to codify same-sex marriage into law. The decision on Obergefell you and I have talked about in the past from 2015, the left fears that it's under uh, it's, it's, it's going to be threatened because of what happened with Roe versus Wade. Uh, a number of Republicans agreed and joined in and voted, 47 of them, in fact, in the House. I'm going to get your thoughts on that and where it goes from here as we continue. Peter Kirsten out with us on AM 1420, The Answer. Ten twenty-five. we continue with Kirsten out on Always Right Radio. 
Pete, in a gesture aimed at blocking the Supreme Court from reversing the 2015 decision that legalized same-sex marriage, the House yesterday adopted legislation that would provide federal protections for same-sex marriages and require states to recognize them. They're calling it the Respect for Marriage Act, which would repeal the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, which, by the way, had the support of most of the prominent Democrats who are currently in charge of the Democrat Party at that time. Uh, but they got a 267 to 157 vote yesterday, 47 Republicans, including Dave Joyce, Anthony Gonzalez, Mike Turner, and Mike Carey, all Ohio Republicans, uh, to back this thing. It was opposed largely by Jim Jordan, uh, Congressman Jordan, who has been one of the champions of the Defense of Marriage Act and described this particular bill as being wholly unnecessary since the author of the majority decision, Samuel Lito in uh, Roe, said the court emphasizes that this decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. Um, so is this entire thing nothing more than virtue signaling? Is it just one more, you know, another bended knee to the LGBTQ community, which is quickly taking over legislative matters in this country? How do you view it? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both, but the former. I think that mostly the former. Immediately after Dobbs came out, you saw among a lot of people on the left, the politicians on the left, uh, a lot of wailing and hand-wringing, politically motivated, big surprise, to energize their base into thinking that they're coming after everybody. You know, they said the next thing they're going to do is come after Obergefell, then it's going to be Loving versus Virginia, the the uh, case that struck down Virginia's anti-missing chase. It's easy for me to say, me to say anti-interracial marriage laws, and uh, a whole host of other things. And the idea was because they are in such horrible shape, shape politically is to divert attention. They saw the kind of energy flowing from many progressives on the left after Dobbs and tried to extend that to a host of other things to broaden the base of their support because otherwise they're going to get destroyed. You hear a lot of political prognosticators on television. They're very good. Some of them know a lot a lot of stuff about politics and polls and so on and so forth. But I've been around for a while, and I've looked at these things myself, and I have absolutely no reservation in saying that it's going to be a bloodbath. Yes, all the usual caveats apply. Depends on turnouts. Depends on, you know, whether some significant thing happens between now and the election. But it's right now looking as bad as it's been in our lifetimes for any party in a midterm election, any party in a midterm election. So they have to throw up as much as they can because they've got an incompetent in the White House who they know is going to continue to dig a grave for them, dig the hole deeper. And I just... To answer your question, yes, I do think this is a nice, you know, shiny little toy to wave around and say, here's what we're doing, you guys. You know, we need to get this passed. Watch how slowly they walk this legislation through. Uh, First of all, I don't know to what extent it's going to be crafted in a way that makes any sense. But aside from that, yes, this is a political diversion. Big surprise in the lead up to the midterm elections. Yeah, and not just a diversion. Jordan called it an attempt to delegitimize and attempt to intimidate the court. Uh, because they don't like what they did with, obviously, we talked about West Virginia and the EPA, certainly, you know, uh, uh, the gun, the gun uh, bill in uh, uh, New York State, as well as, obviously, Roe. 
Uh, so this is an attempt to basically intimidate the court and say, we are not going to let you do anything that we don't like, which, by the way, is all the court said. Uh, you know, if you wanted to make, you know, Roe versus Wade a law, it had to come legislatively. And if it isn't, then it's got to go to the states, and the states can do it legislatively, individually. Uh, that's all they asked for anyway, all the court asked for anyway. But Jordan said this is just an attempt to smear the court, make the court look like it is uh, extremist. Uh, and because of the decisions that it just made or the opinions it just announced, we're going to prevent them from making similar conservative decisions in the future. Yeah, I don't disagree. And I think this is a tack that the left has been taking for a while now. And it's a dangerous road in terms of trying to delegitimize the Supreme Court or another branch of government already have an all-time low in terms of the trust of the American people and the various institutions in this country. There's been a number of very fine um, theorists and political scientists who have written about the dangers implicit in continued derogation of trust in institutions, and society begins to break down. We're seeing a little bit of that fraying going on right now. It's, uh, you know, many of, I don't want to uh, paint a broad brush among all Democrats, but among certain political Democrats, they are completely reckless. They don't care about preserving the institutions of the country or the United States of America. They're simply out for scoring political points, and this is another attempt to do so. No question about it. And by the way, when this bill, now that it has gotten out of the House, goes to the Senate, it will be co-sponsored by, there by none other than, you want to take a guess? I have no idea. Rob Portman who voted for the Defense of Marriage Act as being between one man and one woman, and then, of course, reversed himself completely when it was personal to him because his son told him he was gay. Suddenly, Rob Portman, no, no, no Defense of Marriage Act. That's terrible. No, marriage marriage, marriage for anybody, for, for males and females, and who knows, Lord, what other, what other combinations they want to come up with. Rob Portman has said he will, or a spokesperson said he will co-sponsor the bill in the Senate. Not, not a surprise, I'm sure. All right, Pete, uh, we'll hold off there. We'll take our time out. We'll get our news. We'll come back. Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. Enlightening the sleeping masses and stoking the fire of the American dream. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Always Right on AM 1420, The Answer, and online at alwaysright.us. Alwaysright.us. Make sure you're checking out for the news of the day, the most recent interviews, the most recent links to the uh, topics we have discussed. It's all there for you on alwaysright.us. We continue now with Peter Kirschnow at 1039. Pete, two other to- uh, topics I want to get from uh, get uh, into with you before you're done this morning. There was uh, a good guy with a gun. Uh, the one thing that, you know, the Democrats and the left seems to think is a unicorn. They think it's not real. It doesn't exist. It's a myth. Uh, a good guy with a gun in a shopping mall in uh, in uh, Indiana, suburban Indianapolis, uh, shot and killed a mass shooter who had just opened fire with his rifle. Uh, he shot five people, killing three of them. Within 15 seconds, a 22-year-old... Um, I don't know what to call him other than a hero. That probably doesn't really work here. But a 22-year-old hero saw it happening and immediately pulled out his legally carried carried 9mm he was carrying under the new Indiana law that they signed on to, the constitutional carry law. Um, that allows a person, even without a registration, to uh, for concealed carry, to carry uh, in public places. So he pulls out his gun, and within 15 seconds, he fires 10 shots from 40 yards. And you've Amazing. run a 40. You've 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 run a 40 yard dash or two in your time. 40 <laughs> yards away, 
and in 10, 10 shots, he struck him eight times. Uh, amazing. Sim- simply amazing. And the story should end with, that's a hero. Give him a public commendation. Give him the Medal of Freedom that uh, that Biden gave to Megan Rapino, the America-hating soccer player, instead. It should end with that. But instead, it, it, it continues with the left livid that this 22-year-old had a gun in a public place. Sonny Hostin on The View, or Hostin, or whatever her name is, literally lied and said he had he carried it illegally, and it was illegally acquired. Uh, simply not true. But they are livid uh, that this kid is being held as a hero. Uh, he was called by the mayor a good Samaritan. I think the police chief called him a good Samaritan as well, and they are literally posting uh, 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 tweets with Bible verses about what the Good Samaritan really was, somebody who, not somebody who kills other people. They're mad, Peter Kersenow, in my view, that there wasn't a bigger body count, that this wasn't like Uvalde, that this wasn't like, you know, um, uh, what happened in uh, uh, Buffalo, and so forth, that, that they didn't have another 10, 15 dead bodies that they can use to go back and tell law-abiding people to turn in their guns. They're mad about it, and so instead of hailing this kid as a hero, they're diminishing his accomplishment. Uh, and uh, like I said, low-key, very upset that there, weren't more, there wasn't more blood spilled so that they could advance their agenda. What do you think? Um, you know, there there may be some of that. I think that they want to advance their agenda, and they don't like anything that, uh, you know, confounds the narrative. I also think it's a little bit of stupidity and ignorance, and uh, just a lot of politics. And what what that what's amazing to me is what you just described. I didn't realize he was that far away and was able to hit the target that many times. Um, really extraordinary under fire. That's That's just amazing. But nonetheless, what the response of the left shows is that for quite some time now, it's been almost naked in terms of their approach to these things. They used to deny it, but ever since George Floyd, at least, they've been siding with criminals. They're, they, you know, they want to let criminals out of jail. They're making excuses for criminals. They make excuses for riots, all kinds of things. They elect prosecutors that will indict innocent people, but not criminals. It's extraordinary what's going on here. In the past, when you used to say, well, the left is more favorable to uh, criminal element, you know, they would deny it vehemently uh, and claim that they were just upholding constitutional rights. Well, right now, the constitutional rights go in favor of the Good Samaritan. Yet they want to abolish all of that, and they're more concerned about the fact that he used a weapon to stop the carnage. A number of people have said whenever these things uh, occur that, uh, you know, when uh, seconds count, police are minutes away. In a circumstance such as this, the body count, as you indicated, would have gone far higher. And if you can imagine the other people in that mall who were witnessing what was happening, and they didn't know if there was anyone around who could come to the rescue. They had no idea how many more rounds this guy had. And every fraction of a second felt like an hour to them, especially if you're a parent and have kids there. You know, you're just thinking about, how do I get out of here? And here comes the Good Samaritan within seconds. Had been up to the police, the body count would have gone higher. That's why the left misses this entirely. And, you know, compound that with uh, the story, and I've lost track of uh, the the name of this, so I apologize, but the Sunderland, that's it, Sunderland, the individual who was shooting up um, the girlfriend's apartment with the kids inside. In Minneapolis. Right, and it was shot by cops. 
And right away, you had Black Lives Matter protesters and others arguing that this was, you know, arguing with the cops, saying that this is you know, another example of uh, uh, cops out of control. This is extraordinary what's happening here. And you had the situation in the bodega in New York where uh, Al Bragg indicts the bodega owner. And we saw the video of that. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary what's going on here. They are siding with criminals, and we should say that forthrightly, unabashedly, and challenge them on it. This is crazy. We're seeing the largest spike in crime in our lifetimes, and it's a direct result of this advocacy for criminals, a pure advocacy for criminals, not for uh, civil liberties, not for making sure that equal justice under the law is applied, but advocacy for criminals. This is horrific, and the political process needs to play here in November. I'm not advocating for, for Republicans versus Democrats. I'm arguing for sanity here and make sure the good guys are protected. You know, uh, and I'm I'm glad to hear you you, you phrase it that way, Uh, and I'm glad you brought up the Minneapolis case, which I have not. The Black Lives Matter protests there, uh, uh, screaming about the police, uh, you know, shooting this armed individual who is shooting people. That they that drew more outrage. You're you're exactly right. The police shooting that uh, killer in uh, or would be killer in Minneapolis drew more outrage than this mall shooter did because the. uh, the mall shooter obviously didn't didn't get a chance to do uh, you know any any more damage. They're 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 angry that good people with guns step up. They're angry that police with guns step up. And what they won't acknowledge is the one thing that I say every single time there's one of these events. I don't care if it's the Minneapolis case. I don't care if it's the mall shoot. I don't care if it's Buffalo in the grocery store. If it's Valdez in the schools, mass shootings end the same way every time when good guys with guns show up, whether they're uniformed or whether they're not. When somebody starts shooting back at mass shooters mass shooters stop they either shoot themselves they shoot continue to shoot and uh, at the police officers and get shot dead by the police officers or they throw their guns down and put their hands in the air and say don't kill me and they surrender uh that's the only way these situations end is when somebody with a gun shows up and so the question is as you pointed out correctly do you want to wait minutes or do you want to wait seconds and if you want to wait seconds, then you allow staffers in school buildings to be armed. You allow staffers, uh, and you take those ridiculous gun-free zone signs off of the front of your business, and you put up, replace it with a concealed carry welcome here, um, and then watch and see how many people are brazen enough, bold enough to come in and commit a mass shooting when they know there could be armed people around them. So it's just important to get all of that out there. All right, Pete, uh, last topic I wanted to cover with you is the death of science. Science is essentially surrendering, uh, or it has been surrendered, as Merriam-Webster, the premier dictionary people for you know the decades that I've been alive, uh, they have amended. Pete, you still there? I'm, I'm here. Pete, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that's okay. I, th- I thought I heard a click, like we lost you. Uh, they have amended the definition of female just to placate the trans movement. They have amended the definition of female. Now we have obviously already always known what what fem, you know f- female is defined as. Um, female is defined according to Merriam-Webster as. Da, 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 I'm, I'm waiting for it to refresh here. I apologize. I think Bob um, just of relating to. I think I think they were revising the definition of woman. No, no, female, female, which female, matters. Okay. Female, yeah. Then that's what matters here. The primary definition is 
of relating to or being the sex that typically has the capacity to bear young or produce eggs. And that's correctly worded because not every female has the capacity. Not every woman can bear young. Obviously, we know this. My, my, my mother, my adoptive mother was one of them. Uh, and of course, after a hysterectomy, blah, blah, blah. So that, that's a correct definition of female. Then they went on to add a second definition. And the second definition that they added on to of relating to or being the sex, or excuse me, of relating to or being the sex that typically has the capacity to bear young or produce eggs, they went ahead and added um, another definition of relating to, I'm sorry, uh, it's, just, it's skipping all over the place here, I apologize, I want to read it exactly right, um, nodding to the gender identity, they frame, phrased it as having a gender identity that is the opposite of male. There it is. So they added a second definition, or which other word, in other words, it amends the entire entry. Female also means having a gender identity that is the opposite of male. So therefore, an actual male, if he has the identity of a female, can indeed be referred to now by dictionary standards as a female. Sorry, it was a little clunky there, Pete, but that's what they did. Well, um, you know, what's happening with Merriam-Webster is the least of our concerns because there are a number of medical schools now that are adopting the same type of approach. And you can just imagine, extrapolate from that and see the negative consequences of it. You know, um, we've discussed these kinds of things over a number of years now, Bob. That is that we are taking a stark departure from reality in... I think, I'm, I'm, I don't know if in this case it's in, in merely in the service of a political agenda or something even more overarching, but it has civilizational implications. You and I have talked about the fact that, look, if somebody wants to identify as something, I'm not going to, I'm going to be polite to anybody on, on an individual basis, okay? Uh, if they're going to identify as something or they want to be called something, I'll call that to the extent it doesn't compromise my own principles and, frankly, real life. But I will be polite to the extent it doesn't unnecessarily intrude on those things. But when it starts to get to the point where you're denying reality, denying science, as you've indicated, then at that point, I don't think that we have as a civilization, um, the not even just the duty, but, but uh, the right to compromise those things. Calling things what they are is essential to having a sane civilization. Uh, you don't make changes simply because, or in terms of raw definitions, um, in terms of facts, because it makes people feel good. That's what children do, and you're playing make-believe at that point, all right? Again, I think people of goodwill, conservatives especially, are the ones who generally try to treat people with dignity and respect, and I think we do that with people on an individual basis. But by the same token, objective standards must be maintained if we're going to have any hope of functioning as a civilized society. Yeah, and and the reason, by the way, that it matters that they changed female, uh, Pete, and not woman, because no one is willing to define woman now, as you know. You saw the exchange, and I think we talked about it last week, did we not? I can't remember what day the hearing between Hawley or the uh, showdown between Hawley and the um, Cal Berkeley uh, professor. The Cal professor, right, exactly. uh, you know, of course, you know, she she refuses to define women. The, the, the woman who is in charge of the, what was it called, the National Women's Law something or another organization, was asked in those same hearings to define woman. 
She literally is in charge of something called like the National Women's Law Association. It's literally for women, and she refused and could not define woman. And they want you to accept that men can get pregnant. It is their religion now to make you accept bio- biological impossibilities as being facts. Um, and so, you know, defining woman, of course, everybody typically, t- uh, uh, you know, it goes to female who blah, blah, blah. So they had to change female to say, you know, female can be, uh, uh, you know, a male, essentially, if they have the right gender identity. So that's the problem here is what they are trying to do is change our language, change what we refer to as being, you know, kind of accepted science and so forth. And to say all of it is in flux because, Pete, if they can take scientific facts and make them questionable, if they can make them malleable, then they can convince us and themselves and most importantly, our children and the next generations of anything. And that, of course, will allow them to build uh, the opposite of what we have now. Right, and and that's a theme that a number of us have been pressing for a long time, and it goes back to not just 1984 and Orwell, but you can look at uh, Kessler's Darkness at Noon, and I like to talk about this on a regular basis. If you look at those novels, uh, they're dystopian, but they really portend very grave ills for a society. We can't continue going down this path without being potentially very bad consequences. This is what happens in the Soviet Union, in China, Nazi Germany, and a lot of other totalitarian regimes. If they can control what you say, they can control what you think. And that's part of the objective here on the part of the left. Is everyone nefarious? Is everyone evil that's doing this? No. But there is an effort that's now fairly naked to the eye to show that they're trying to change the discourse related to fundamental matters so they can change the nature of our society. And look, um, all I know is this. A thousand years from now, when somebody exhumes the bones of somebody who identifies as female but is male, that person is, or that paleontologist is going to say, or archaeologist is going to say, well, that, that's a male. Uh, at least I, unless science has gone completely off the rails permanently, that's going to be the case. But for scientific reasons, for societal reasons, for medical reasons, it's important for the accuracy, the logic of the situation to pertain. Otherwise, again, the political narrative takes hold, and it's not a political narrative. When they have to spread falsehoods about something, the Mm. political narrative is not going to be a positive one at the end of the day. That's exactly right. And by the way, since you used the word novel there, um, I heard there's some movement on the devil's weapons, except it's not good movement because it's coming later than you promised us this past spring. Than <laughs> Which you is better said movement it would. for me, actually. Yeah, yeah we're, okay, we're, fair it's, enough. It's better for but for sales. those, we're moving it closer to to Christmas so that we can take greater advantage of Christmas sales. Generally speaking, they try. It, I don't purport to understand this stuff, but the, <laughs> the folks in the, in the in the publishing business tell me that there's a certain window that's favorable, more favorable than others, for uh, maximizing sales. So they're pushing it back a little bit to because. They think that uh, we may be able to get some good sales out of this thing, and so I'm not going to object to that because, you know, um, I'm looking at uh, maybe taking a few trips. Wow. Well, that's that's fantastic. But for those who don't know what we're talking about, this is the W.E.B. Griffin book, uh, part of the W.E.B. Griffin series, rather, that you have been tasked with picking up the mantle and, and continuing on. Uh, it's a novel called The Devil's Weapons. It's going to be on sale on December 6th, as Pete just said, in order to take advantage of Christmas time. We were hoping it would be released sometime this summer, uh, because there are a lot of people who just can't really wait for their next curse and I'll fix uh, to be to be. Uh, uh, to be met. Uh, so they're going to be looking forward to this. But uh, it'll be available on December 6th. You and I will talk about it plenty between now and then, but just wanted to give people a heads up. Thanks, Bob, and, and thanks to John for the bumper music. 
Ah, there you go. Johnny's got your back, buddy. Peter Kirsten now, everybody. Thank you very much. We appreciate you, Pete. Take care, Bob. Always Wait Radio, 1056, back after this. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. Hour number three underway now. Nine minutes. Whoops, I'm a liar. Ten minutes past 11 o'clock. Yeah, it happens that fast. Uh, on this Wednesday, it is the 20th morning of the seventh month of the year of our Lord, 2022. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks to Peter Kersenow, a lot of very important uh, analysis offered by Pete in the last hour. And we want to welcome now our regular Wednesday commentator, reporter extraordinaire for the Ohio Star. He, of course, is Neil McKay, back with us again on AM 1420, The Answer and Always Right Radio. Neil, good morning. How are you? Hey, fantastic, Bob. Great to be with you. Good to talk to you, as always, my friend. So there's a lot of issues to get into now as we talk about Ohio politics and Ohio issues. And uh, I'm going to start with an article that I read this morning. It was in the um, Washington Examiner uh, about the race between Tim Ryan and uh, and J.D. Vance. You and I talked about this a little bit last week, uh, so I don't want to cover all of that old ground again. But it is interesting that um, there are a lot of Republicans who are opening up their mouths who are very displeased with the way J.D. Vance is running his campaign. Now, again, you and I talked about it. It's a different thing to be running against one person in a general than it is against a whole bunch of people in which he bided his time and waited until he had a last push. Uh, and then, of course, the endorsement from Donald Trump to get him over that hump. This is different, but he's running it the same way. And the headline for the to- or the examiner is Ohio Republicans want more action and more effort from J.D. Vance in this key fall Senate race. Neil, is he taking this race for granted, considering the fact that Tim, is, uh, Tim Ryan has raised over $9 million in the first quarter, a huge haul, and he is sitting down there very, very with, with much less and not really seemingly worried about it? Is he taking this race for granted because Trump won by over eight points in each of the last two elections, that this is a red enough state that all he has to do is, you know, do, do the Biden sit in the basement routine and know, just know that people are going to vote for him? It's, it's very interesting what's happening uh, in the Senate. You know, you're also seeing a similar slide with uh, Herschel Walker in Georgia, and you're seeing, frankly, Dr. Oz, who we've talked about in Pennsylvania, sort of experiencing the sort of uh, almost doldrums in a campaign. To, specifically with Vance, you know, going into the primary, they set up a, it was a structural theory or, or system, right, where they said, hey, we're going to let the super PAC do all the heavy lifting, 
and then we're going to keep this skeleton of a campaign and basically just sort of, you know, we'll go on and then we'll go on Tucker every week. And, you know, throughout the campaign, there were a lot of people who told me that, you know, they had invited J.D. Vance to come speak at their group. They had reached out to J.D. Vance and, it, and you know, he just wasn't traveling. He wasn't interacting. And this was all sort of the strategy. And it looked like a losing strategy, you know, when the guy is sitting at uh, five or seven percent. What? Correct me if I'm wrong. Two weeks before the primary, right? Yeah, like sound, yeah, yeah. That sounds about right. <laughs> and, and then he's the nominee. Um, I think the I think that he knew for a long time that the Trump endorsement was in his back pocket you know, because of his friendship with Don Jr. and whatnot, and also being backed by Peter Thiel. But having said all that, you know, uh, Tim Ryan, it's not like he isn't a fighter. It's not like he isn't going to work. It's not like he's a bad retail politician. Uh, you know, he knows how to, he knows to show up at parades and picnics and uh, Cub Scout pancake breakfasts. And J.D. Vance is, is in danger of being out-hustled out for a race, a Senate seat that could be his. And uh, it's it's fascinating to watch if it wasn't so sad for conservatives. And, you know, may, maybe they'll snap out of it. I know that um, I know J.D. Vance is in Israel right now or on his way to Israel, the CPAC there. Um, you know, maybe, they, maybe they're waiting till after, you know, Labor Day. I don't know. I know that the Senate is here in D.C., Right, the, the Senate is basically out of business until after Labor Day. They they yeah. pretty much shut down, and so you know we'll see what we'll see what happens. We're talking to Neil McCabe, reporter for the Ohio Star, and our regular uh, Ohio commentator, commenting uh, commenting on Ohio news and issues. And yeah, you you mentioned um, when you and I spoke before um, the program uh, that he's in he's at a CPAC event in Israel. Uh, JD Vance says, right, you know CPAC is. Uh, CPAC is, is, is growing, right? So it's, uh, there's going to be one in Dallas the first week in August. And, of course, the main CPAC, the sort of legacy CPAC, was for, you know, 40 years in Washington, D.C., and that's now that's now held in Florida. Um, but, you know, the CPAC's in Korea. And so, I mean, I think that's fantastic. And the American Conservative Union deserves a lot of credit for figuring out how to a way to sort of uh, expand this this thing and create sort of an international network of conservatives but um you know i I don't know how he's polling in israel you know that that, uh, that's the reason i'm asking and i'm not saying it's not good that he goes because obviously you know expressing our support for israel is a huge republican thing to do obviously with president trump and what he did you know it's all very important but i i don't know how much this is going to uh, you know, way on the the voters of the state of Ohio, particularly centrist voters, um, you know, who oftentimes are the dif- difference between victory and defeat. Yeah, Republicans, uh, you know, certainly know this, but he's spending time in Israel. Hey, it's great, good job. Way to continue to establish our relationship there. But what are you doing for me as a citizen of Ohio? Or what do you plan to do as a citizen uh, and, and a voter in the state of Ohio? I just wonder how much weight this will carry with them. Yeah, I, 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 I hope there's a, um, I hope that he's doing this for an over the horizon reason that makes sense. But, yeah. uh, you know, but the trends are all, it's like JD Vance, like if you were going to design a candidate to run in Ohio, uh, it would be, uh, what, hillbilly guy, marine veteran <laughs> of Iraq, 
uh, you know, Yale Law School, backed by Peter Thiel. Like, I, you know, like he's not a dope. He's a very smart guy. He's a very earnest guy. And, you know, I, I, being on the road and interacting with people only helps him. He's not, you know, there's a, you know, the dirty secret about Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016 was that, you know, they had to keep her out of Michigan and out of Wisconsin and out of Philadelphia and out of Pennsylvania because every time she showed up in Wisconsin, her polls went down. Yeah, because you know? she's so utterly unlikable. She doesn't help herself when she's on the on the road. She yeah. doesn't help herself. He and I think unlikable. No, he's, he's not. He's very. In fact, he's the opposite. He's very likable. Every time I talk to JD Vance, it's a pleasant conversation. He takes criticism very well. Uh, I have, I have, I have, you know, taken some shots at him face to face or voice to voice anyway on phone interviews on this program. He handles them with a plum. He 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 really is a uh, you know a very likable guy. Um, and I think he would help himself if he went out there and put that charm on display in a lot more conservative venues and a lot more uh, places around the state. And I think it'll just show that he cares more too. That I am a man of the people. I am not a you know I'm not just you know Mr. Yale and and and, and all the rest and Mr. You know movie star or or or, or at least liter- literary star because the book and the movie. You know that he's uh, he's very relatable. I think he is a relatable guy, and I think the more he goes out, the better he will do for himself. And uh, staying in the basement or taking trips to Israel, I don't know if they're necessarily, like I said, going to move the needle too much. I think uh, the final uh, sort of my final take on this race is, yeah. is to go national. Is that you know Senator uh, Rick Scott from Florida is head of the National Republican Senate Committee, which is the political wing of Senate Republicans. He tried maybe four months ago to do sort of a contract of America or to somehow nationalize these Senate races to create some national momentum in this cycle. And he was immediately kneecapped by McConnell because McConnell recognizes that Rick Scott is a challenge to McConnell's leadership in the next cycle. Um, And so any effort to serve for the national Republicans to do anything to get be in the news or to force votes or to, to do all the things to embarrass the Democrats, that the Democrats are so good with Republicans, forcing, you know, forcing Democrats to take bad votes on life and immigration and guns is just not going to happen in the Senate. Uh, and so, you know, J.D. has to do it on his own, just like all these other senators have to do it on own. And I, I will say also, uh, cycle-wise, everyone talks about this red wave, as, you know, the first midterm of a president's uh of a president's term, the party out of power will do well institutionally. Um, the the cycle in the Senate is, is different because a third of the Senate is up every two years. And so right now there are only 14 Democrats up and there are 20 Republicans up. So this is not a good cycle. There's only 14 targets of opportunity and there's maybe four races, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, Maybe New Hampshire, maybe Colorado. And these are people, these are incumbents who, who won with less than 52% of the vote. Um, and so that's sort of where the action is. But it's, it, I don't see a big year for the Republicans. Certainly, it's almost like they're taking a knee block. You, yeah, you mentioned that to me when we were uh, kind of prepping our conversation today, and I was I was kind of curious as to what you meant by taking that knee. You know, in that, did you read the Examiner article that I was talking about, that I referenced? Uh, I, I didn't, but I'm I'm familiar with uh, I'm familiar with what's going on in there. You know? Yeah, I know you are. Yeah, I Ryan, know you are. I just wanted to Ryan, share. Ryan's tack, and Ryan's tacking. Ryan, you know, is tacking to the right, and 
and you know it's almost like he's not being challenged it's it's like a over and over again you know republicans cede the field to the democrats and don't challenge them and so what's a Repu- what's a what's a voter to think yeah, no, you're you're exactly right, and I was just going to read the last two um, uh, graphs of this article in the uh, in the Examiner talking about this. A lot of it you just covered very well, but just to kind of show that there is some uh, some uniformity in the thinking here. They claim Republican donors, grassroots contributors, and those who write big checks do not feel the urgency to invest in vans, figuring victory in Ohio is guaranteed. It is also possible wealthy Republican financiers presume GOP megadonor Peter Thiel, the venture capitalist who pumped more than $10 million into the Provence Project, or Protect Ohio Value Super PAC in the primary, will, which you've talked about, will rescue the candidate if money becomes a pressing problem for the campaign. But then this is the bigger part. A lot of big donors have been told not to worry about states like Ohio and North Carolina and to instead give money to try to pull off an upset in Colorado or Washington, a national GOP operative said. We would all love to win 54 seats, but we should lock down the easiest races to get to 51 before we start trying for 54. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that Washington race is, mm-hmm. is pretty scary for Democrats because, uh, you know, I don't think Patty Murray buys green bananas anymore. <laughs> well said. Very, very well said. Uh, uh, Neil McCabe, uh, uh, our, our wonderful commentator for the, uh, for, I'm sorry, for our Wednesday program, but he is a terrific reporter for the Ohio Star. Neil, always a pleasure. You've got your finger on the pulse of things in Columbus. Uh, by the way, any thoughts, real super quick, on, um, the uh, August 2nd primary, uh, obviously early voting is underway. We're, what, 12 days away, I guess, or so from the uh, uh, from the actual election day. Uh, the state central committee races are up for grabs. Reforming the, centr- uh, the, uh, the ORP is a primary goal, is a huge goal of conservative Republicans in this state. Obviously, maybe getting rid of the do-nothing um, Republicans who act like Democrats in the Ohio Senate, maybe getting rid of a few of those and uh, and replacing them with people who actually believe in things like you know medical autonomy, uh, bodily choice, and uh, and those types of things. Uh, any thoughts on the race coming up? Well, I, I think that uh, J.D. Vance and the other Republican candidates, you know, I'm thinking about the House candidates in general, are not helped by a corrupt and ineffective Central Committee that is sort of just strapped to this political corpse called Mike DeWine. And so they are not, what happens with institutions that are unable to reform themselves will get obliterated from the outside and they'll have to build up from scratch. And, uh, you know, there are people inside the Republican Party of Ohio who are trying to fix things. But basically, they're being boxed out, and you have, you have what, 20 or 15 to 20 members of the committee who are on payroll or even, uh, you know, on, have appointments with the state or with the party. It, it, it's really kind of shabby the way they run things. Uh, I, I felt really dirty just dealing with people over there at the uh, state Republican Party. Um, and, and so, you know, I, 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 I'm, I know they're targeting Mark Bainbridge who's an absolute patriot, and there's a bunch of other people who try to call out the missing money and some of the shenanigans, but, uh, you know, there's a, you know, the institution is going to circle the wagons, and it's unfortunate. 
Well, the the good news is there is a very strong, strong movement for reforming the leader of the ORP and uh, replacing that leadership. So, yeah, they're going to circle the wagons, but I think the onslaught is going to be a lot stronger than people realize too from the uh, from the reforms. Your words to God's ears, Bob. Amen to that. Amen to that. Uh, Neil McCabe, Ohio Star. Thank you so much, my friend. Always a pleasure. We'll talk to you next week. Good. All right, we'll take a time out here at eleven twenty-four. Always right, radio AM fourteen twenty. The answer. It is eleven twenty-seven now. Always right radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Thanks to Peter Kersenow and to Neil McCabe, my guests, the last hour and a half. Uh, the rest of the way is uh, is your time. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Anything that you've heard, anything we've discussed that you want to follow up on and talk about, you are certainly welcome to do so. Uh, if you have not heard something that you wanted me to talk about, you can ask that question or make that comment, and we'll take that as well. Uh, so we'll have you for about another 18 minutes or so before we hand it off to Bill O'Reilly for the rest of uh, the hour. But uh, I want to go back uh, briefly to one of the things I was talking about with Pete, one of the things I was talking about uh, with you in the first hour of the program, and that is the ongoing war uh, that the Biden administration has, uh, has waged against fossil fuels. And I want you to know that the decisions you make, not just in, in presidential elections, but the decisions you make in congressional races literally are going to impact your dollars, your 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 pocketbook, your your budget, whatever you want to call it, your wallet. I, I was looking in the Ohio Star because that's where Neil McCabe writes for, and uh, there's a great story there right now that was posted today about Joe Biden's war on fossil fuels. But the one that grabbed my attention next to it was a reminder here that we have to pay attention to these races coming up in November, and we just assume a red wave. That doesn't mean we're going to win every race, race that we should race. Or excuse me, we're not going to win every race that we should win. And the headline in this story is, The Ohio Congressional Candidate Matthew Deemer suggested Americans should just buy electric vehicles to avoid gas prices. In other words, same thing, same mindset as Pete Booty Judge. Pete Booty Judge, sitting before a House panel yesterday, said, you know... Of course, the more pain we are all experiencing from the high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access electric vehicles. The more pain that we suffer through in in gas prices, the the more benefit there is for the electric vehicle owners. The problem is, and this Matthew Deemer is an example of it, he's the one running against Max Miller in Ohio 7, the Trump-endorsed candidate, Max Miller. Matthew Deemer said, uh, and this was back in January, I'm a proud owner of a Tesla and spend $60 a month on fueling it. That is the least amount I've ever spent in my life on what would normally be a $200 to $300 a month in gas bill. He went on to say, Gas-fueled automobiles are going the way of the dodo. They're bad for the environment, cost an arm and a leg every month, and are simply not sustainable in the long run. America needs to accelerate uh, accelerate the production of EVs, and they need to do it fast. You see, this is the kind of thing that you need to hear. It's why I do what I do. So that you can make sure if you're in seven, that you absolutely positively know what you're getting if you vote for a Democrat. This short-sighted, shallow-thinking, simple-minded Democrat thinks that 
Everybody should be able to just go out and buy a $57,000 automobile and that it'll save them money on their fuel. He thinks that it's okay to buy a $57,000 automobile, adding hundreds of dollars to your monthly outgo in terms of a car payment, far more money to insure an electric vehicle for your car insurance than a standard uh, gasoline-powered automobile. The extraordinary increase in your electric bill, the extraordinary inconvenience of being able to plug your vehicle into uh, a port, if you live in an apartment building and not a home where you can install a 220 line in your garage, or as somebody brought up on the program yesterday, if you live in a very uh, congested, highly densely populated area where you have to park on the street because there's nowhere, when do you get to charge? When you get to work, how many ports are going to be there at work waiting for you? You have to take it up to the to the corner charging station and sit there for two and a half hours while your car charges. They never talk about those things. They also never talk about the fact that these EVs are technology that are extraordinarily expensive to repair and replace if you can replace them at all. And I've got a story on that that I'll follow up with after the news. Always right radio, AM fourteen twenty the answer. In the age of unreason, always write radio with Bob France and the answer. Morning, Bob. I just wanted to um, add to your conversation about the uh, cost of electricity for the cars. Uh, I saw an article last week where a young gal bought a used electric car, 2014 car, drove it for six months. It was all electric, and the battery went bad. She bought the car for $11,000 in six months. It wouldn't drive. It would cost her $16,000 to replace the battery if there was a battery. So now she has a nothing more than a um, paperweight, a large one, for her to take care of. Thank you. That uh, message came in to alwayswrite.us by way of the sound off button from Tom in Aurora. Tom, you are spot on. I saw the same article, although I didn't see it last week. I saw it yesterday. And it's a story of a Florida family. Avery Sawinski, a 17-year-old from St. Petersburg, Florida, loved her little electric Ford Focus. Her parents spent eleven grand on the used vehicle. It was a 2014 with 60,000 miles on the odometer. She loved it. Then one day, <clears throat> just six months after her parents purchased the vehicle for her, and stopped working. In March, it started giving an alert, she said, and then we took it to the shop, and it stopped running. The car, according to the mechanics, needed a new battery, a new electric vehicle battery. You know, the ones we're told are so much better than the combustion engines. Yeah. Unfortunately, the local Ford dealership said that replacing the battery will cost $14,000 before labor. The dealership made an offer to buy the vehicle from her for $500. Remember, her parents paid eleven grand for it six months earlier. According to her grandfather, the story gets worse from there. Weeks after learning that the battery, re- battery replacement cost more than the car itself, and more than they paid for it by three grand before labor, 
Ray Sawinski learned that owners of the electric Ford Focus cannot even buy a replacement battery to keep their car going. Ford discontinued production of that vehicle several years ago. Then I found out the batteries aren't even available, he told WTSP News down in uh, uh, St. Petersburg. Um, So it didn't even matter. They could cost twice as much, and we still couldn't get one if we wanted to. The infuriating story comes as the Biden administration continues pushing electric vehicles over gas-powered cars. We're for cutting the cost of electric vehicles, because when you have an electric vehicle, then you are going to save on gas, but you've got to be able to afford it in the first place. Transportation Secretary Pete Booty Judge said, but that, of course, is before Booty Judge reminded everybody that we want people to feel the pain so that those who do get into the electric vehicles have a bigger uh, value. Of course, the more pain we are all experiencing from the high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access electric vehicles. So the more benefit for people who can afford a $56,000 on average car. And if you buy a used one, you better doggone well find out what the lifespan of that battery is. Otherwise, as the caller said, you've got nothing more than a giant paperweight. If there are any papers in your driveway that you have to keep weighted down, of course. Electric vehicles are out of reach for most Americans unless they enter into a massive amount of debt. According to Kelly Blue Book, and now this is interesting. I've been saying to you that a, a, a new EV, according to Kelly Blue Book, costs an average of fifty six, fifty seven thousand dollars Well, that has changed since, since uh, last month. According to Kelly Blue Book now, and this is in the Blaze News story I just shared with you, the average cost of an EV is nearly $67,000. So if you get a used one like they did for 11000 or for 14000 or for whatever thousand, you better find out what the shelf life of that battery is, or you may end up with nothing more than a paperweight because it won't be able to be replaced. And even if it is, you're going to pay double what you paid for the car. So, yeah, that's what they want us to do. And they want millions upon millions of Americans to do this, to take on that expense and to take on that risk as to whether or not it will last and to, of course, take on the inconvenience of trying to find a place to plug that thing in and charge it all the time without crashing the electrical grid that is already crashing in the summertime because people use their air conditioners. (laughs) That's a hell of a plan they've got there, isn't it? Chuck is in uh, Cleveland. Hi, Chuck. You're on the air. Go ahead, sir. Hey, Bob. Thank you for taking the call. Yes, sir. Now, you had a caller earlier. It's either a caller or it might have been a guest on your program. I don't remember. It was about the elderly. Yeah. Okay. And I'd like to make a comment on that if I could. Real quick. And that is from 25 to 21 year old and below, how much have they taught you? Albeit they're very entertaining. Okay. But as They'll teach you. They, hey Chuck, they'll teach you how to use TikTok uh, and and Instagram, and that's about all you can learn from that age group. I've got to go, my friend. I'm sorry, I don't have more time for you, but the heart out is here. Everybody, stay with me. Let's go, Brandon. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.